Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to see you all, and I'm looking forward to getting into this passage. We've got three chapters. It's a, a big chunk, and I'm keen to rip through it with you. So why don't I ask for God's help uh, for focus for a few minutes now. Heavenly Father, please speak to us through your word uh, now for these few minutes. Open our eyes to your truth, our hearts to your love, and move our hands to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God is the director of the movie that we call history. He writes the script and then he directs. Uh, And you can watch the director's commentary uh, if you read his word and look out at the world. And as you look out, you see leaders of empires come and go. And we know that God has put them there. You know, when Saddam Hussein fell, it was God that pulled down his statue. When Vladimir Putin rose to power, it was God who put him there. God sets all wheels in motion. All things happen at God's direction. It struck me this week, uh, thinking about the book of Kings, that it really is dealing with the world stage, isn't it? Today's passage, we have an empire torn down, three kings assassinated, we have a military coup. History turns, God directs according to his script. And as these leaders are raised and removed, we learn about the nature of judgment. It's speed, it's terror, it's inevitability. So let's dive into understanding our passage. Uh, Firstly, God writes the script and runs the show is my first heading. You can follow along on your outlines if you find that helpful. We've got three chapters today, uh, and they record quite a bit of Israel's history, but the script for the history was written in one go by God in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19. So turn back there, it's about 12 chapters back in your Bibles, First uh, Kings chapter 19, we'll pick it up at verse 13, because in today's passage, God hits play uh, on his plan laid out in chapter 19. It's, t- today's passage is the final post-production movie screening of what he scripted back here in First Kings 19. Now, if you remember the context here, Elijah has just run from Jezebel. They've had the, the face-off with the Baals on Mount Carmel, if you remember that from when we were going through First Kings. Elijah encounters God on the mountain, and God says, verse 13, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with, by the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. This is a crisis, right? God's nation, his loved nation, they've turned on him. They've turned on Yahweh and they've killed his prophets. So how will God respond? Well, in the next three verses, God lays out his uh, three-part plan and gives the script for history. Uh, And in summary, I won't read it, I'll just summarize it for you. There's a bit of a list up on screen. Uh, He says he's going to raise up Haziel, and that's actually chapter 8 of today's passage. Raise up Jehu, it's chapters 9 and 10. He's going to remove the Baal worshippers, all of Ahab's family, and he's going to reward the faithful remnant. Uh, So that's the script for the next 12 chapters of the book of Kings. Uh, But in most part, it happens to today's passage, uh, 2 Kings chapters 8 to 10. Well, we'll uh, we're going to go through our passage. We're going to save the best for last, the first part uh, that we read. We're going to save that till the very end. Uh, So my three points today um, are going to be, firstly, God raises up Haziel, then he removes Ahab's family with Jehu, and finally he rewards and remembers the faithful scene in the Shunammite woman. 
Well, let's get cracking on our passage. Firstly, God raises up, 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 to 15 it is, is our story. And it begins not in Israel, but in Israel's enemy, the land of their enemies, Aram or Syria. Uh, we've, we've seen this uh, nation come up before, haven't we? Verse 7 says, Elisha came to Damascus while Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And the king was told, the man of God has come here. So the king said to Hazel, take a gift with you, go meet the man of God, inquire of the Lord through him, will I recover from this sickness? So the pagan king has been unwell. Uh, The prophet shows up. What's the prophet doing there in this pagan nation? Well, we know, don't we? God is scripting history. He's directing a plan. The Syrian king Ben-Hadad sends his top man, Hazel, to go see him and and, and to inquire, you know, am I going to make it? Am I going to be okay? Well, verse 9, Hazel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift. And of course, uh, Hazel asked the prophet, is my master going to be okay? But Elisha's uh, answer is quite surprising in verse 10. Elisha told him, go say to him, you are sure to recover, but the Lord has shown me that he's sure to die. Wait, did I read that right? (laughs) Say to him, oh, you're going to be fine, but in reality, he's going to die. (laughs) the king would recover unless someone intervened fatally. And it's hard to know if Elisha puts the idea into the uh, ambitious Hazel's head or if he's just seeing what's coming. It's a very interesting little moment. And either way, seeing the future, Elisha is brought to tears. Uh, Verse 11 says, Then Elisha stared steadily at him until Hazel was ashamed. The man of God wept, and Hazel asked, Why is my Lord weeping? He replied, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash their little ones to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. Hazel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, do this monstrous thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. Elisha sees the future. Hazel will be raised up by God and be used as a a rod against Israel to punish them. They'll be punished for their idolatry and their disobedience. Elisha, it's such terrible images that he uh, uses, isn't he, that he sees here. Uh, And they are the images of war. This is the common uh, language of war back then. This is how they describe the events of war. Uh, But it's terrible that the killing and the dashing of men, women and children, it's just awful. Gruesome images. Hazel himself is horrified that he could do, as he says, such monstrous things. And yet it is the nature of war. War is horrific. You know, the reports right now from Ukraine are are no better. It's truly awful. We forget how terrible humanity can be sometimes. The question, of course, is why are these terrible images in the Bible? Is God just bloodthirsty? No, they're there for us to learn, to warn us. We need to listen to what God is trying to tell us. There's a warning in the great prophet's tears. His stomach turns, he weeps as he sees the torture of God's wrath against unrighteousness and unfaithfulness. We often think that sin is no big deal, but it's so, so ugly, as ugly as the punishment that it receives. God is not messing around. 
Don't get in his bad books. Don't delay to put right the sin in your life. For the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do not forgive will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you see sin in your life, if you see selfishness, ungodliness in your life, picture the tears of the prophet. Picture the pain of war and be motivated to change your life. Because God is not messing around. But also see that the pain that it causes God. Uh, his prophet weeps. Uh, o Jerusalem, God cries out through his prophets at other places. Why did you not listen? O Jerusalem. Um, Andrew Boner, an 18th century Scottish pastor, famously said that the shower of fire and brimstone will be wet with God's tears. For God has no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Let me hasten to move on and leave this terrible image. Because our story continues and ends with Hazel going back to his sick king. Uh, In verse 14, Hazel left Elisha and went to his master who asked him, What did Elisha say to you? He responded, He told me you're sure to recover. You'll be fine. (laughs) But verse 15 continues. The next day, Hazel took a heavy cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over the king's face. Ben-Hadad died, and Hazel reigned instead of him. So Hazel suffocates the king. All that stood between him and the throne was his sick master, and so he acts on his ambition and becomes king of Aram. The prophet predicted correctly, and Hazel acted freely to fulfill it. And as our section closes... We stand back and see that God has raised up a judge. He's crowned a king. He is shaping history on the grander scale. Well, uh, as we move to our next section, uh, I've called it God Removes. For the, the judge's gavel drops, the guillotine falls, and history flies. We see that when God sends judgment, it comes oh so fast. The second section tells the story of God raising up Jehu to be king so that he could put to death the the entire idolatrous family of Ahab. If you remember from 1 Kings, Ahab and Jezebel, they were this terrible uh, family that brought in all this idolatry, uh, that killed all of God's prophets. Um, And their, their idolatrous rejection of Yahweh had spread from Israel, the northern kingdom. It had spread down to Judah. Uh, Verse 27 says, Ahaziah, king of Judah, walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the Lord's sight, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law to Ahab's family. So the king of Judah was the son-in-law of Ahab's family at this point. Somehow Ahab had managed to get uh, his sons to be both the kings of the northern and the southern kingdom. It was terrible. Ahaziah was, yeah, Ahab was his, his uh, father-in-law. Uh, and let me tell you that parents-in-law are the worst. Their parents-in-law are... I, when I preached this this morning, we had our, our kids baptized this morning here, and um, my parents-in-law were in the church, and I quite enjoyed saying it. Um, they, they, are, they, are, they are lovely, and they're amazing. Uh, and they've, they've brought me closer to God, I can truly say. Uh, they've really shaped me over the years. Uh, and you can see it's the opposite case with Ahaziah. 
they had shaped him, but for the worse, he inherited his parents' in-law's religion. And subsequently, Judah was travelling down the idolatrous road at such a pace, it must have seemed unstoppable. Surely God's only option at this point was to remove Judah entirely. The, the infection of idolatry had surely spread. But verse 19 says, The Lord was unwilling to destroy Judah because of his servant David, since he had promised to give a lamp to David and his sons forever. So because of God's promise to David, he would not destroy Judah, even though their idolatry was an affront to him. Imagine what that would be like, uh, loving a nation, setting them up, and then watching them serve other idols every day. What a terrible affront to God. But he promised he would remain faithful to King David so that one day a son of David, Jesus, could rule the whole world. So how could God clean out Judah? How could he remove the house of Ahab? Well, he raises up Jehu the purger, as he's often called. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 1, Elisha says to his prophet, Take the flask of oil with you. Go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in, get him away from his colleagues, take him into an inner room, then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Jehu is a nobody about to become a somebody. The prophet tracks him down, takes him into a room and anoints him in verse 6. He's now king. Uh, now, you've got to try and picture this. These prophets, they kind of, they stood out. They were not, you know, they were, they were hairy. All the images of them are really standing out. And Jehu is with his, with his uh, army mates, and there they were. And then the prophet comes and says, hey, you know, of, of course, Jehu comes back. The prophet leaves. Jehu's probably dripping in oil. They want to know what's going on, right? Uh, and so, so they ask him. Jehu explains in verse 13. Uh, and then we get their reaction. It says, Each man quickly took his garment, put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. God has raised up a judge. God has raised up a king. And Jehu loses no time in getting to work. The ball starts rolling so fast. The scythe of judgment swings back and forth. Uh, God uses Jehu to remove. I, I have a bit of a list. It, it, it's quite the roller coaster, uh, chapters 9 and 10. Jehu, he um, removes Joram, king of Israel. Then he removes Ahaziah, king of Judah. Then he removes Jezebel. I say removes, he, he puts them to death. 70 of Ahab's sons, Ahaziah's relatives. He just runs them on the road, puts them to death. And then of the prophets of Baal, he, he purges uh, the, the temple tears down their poles and puts the prophets to death. And these were all Ahab's, you know, his son, his family, his relatives, and his, his religion, his gods. With surgical precision, the blade cuts, removing the cancerous rebels from God's nation. Judgment comes swiftly when it comes. God's word lights a bomb which goes off and, and kings fall and dynasties crumble 
We don't have to uh, have time to look at uh, each of these encounters. Um, it's really interesting. So each one of these groups is a separate encounter with, with the judge, right? And each, each encounter reveals something else about uh, the nature of sinners and their God. Um, let me just pick one, though. One, uh, the infamous Jezebel, um, who ruthlessly slaughtered Yahweh's prophets. And she knows Jehu's sword is coming. And so what does she do? Well, uh, chapter 9, verse 30 tells us, she put on her makeup. Uh, it says, verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, so she painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked down from the window. It's such an intriguing detail. Jezebel knows what's coming, and yet she puts on her makeup. Why? Was it, was it to seduce Jehu, perhaps? To go out in style? To go out on top to show she's not worried about Yahweh? When the human heart uh, digs its heels in uh, and will not repent, uh, it will not repent, even in the face of death. And so God save us because our, our stubborn hearts will not turn to him on their own. So it's an interesting account. I'll leave you to read about her uh, famous death another time. But it's hard not to see the, the point that Two Kings is making uh, in the way it tells these stories. Judgment is swift. Judgment is gruesome and it is swift. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Hebrews we had a little while ago. It said, in the days of Noah, remember the days of Noah, the flood came. In the days of Noah, they were busy going about their lives, worrying about you know, all the things that we worry about, worrying about uh, you know, all kinds of things, like calories, worrying about little things like calories. I've been worrying about calories lately. I, I, be, I have some growing love handles that have been really been bugging me, and so I've been watching what I eat and you know, how many calories are in that and what's in this? And, you know, it's just really worrying about these little tiny things. It just seems all so trivial. Uh, and there are so many things that we worry about, none of which mattered in the time of Noah, all of which were swept away by the tide of judgment that came upon those people. See, judgment will come so, so quickly. We need to stay focused. We need to listen to the warnings remaining faithful, remaining obedient to the true king. Okay, on to my uh, final point now. God rewards. God rewards. God's script for history involves, as we've seen, the raising up of two kings, two terrible judges, Hazel and Jehu. Uh, and yet they themselves would be judged for their crimes, for the terrible things that they, that they did, that they would do. Uh, and they would be rewarded according to their actions. And so both these men, uh, they, they happily go along with God's plan because it suited their own ambitions. You know, there's this great moment uh, where Jehu, uh, in, in verse 16 of chapter 9, Jehu's on, on a horse and he's kind of mid-rampage and, and he cries out, he says, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Like he's, he's doing all this because he, he has such zeal for the Lord. Uh, but it was really political expediency from a man who wanted to be king. Jehu's heart was not after God's. Uh, chapter 10, verse 31, summarizes Jehu's reign, saying, Jehu was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins that Jeroboam caused Israel to commit. And so for Jehu's limited faithfulness, He's given a limited reward, we're told. Uh, four generations he gets on the throne. F uh, for the idolatry he practices, God, uh, 
took away the security of borders. Uh, his rule was always plagued by wars. And we uh, have record of this uh, as well as scripture as uh, in the archaeological discoveries made from the Assyrians. Uh, this is uh, the Black Obelisk, it's called. Um, uh, and it's the one record we have of Jehu, and it's of him offering tribute to the Assyrian king. He's the guy there bowing down, offering tribute. Uh, and, and, and there's a, uh, an annotation to it, naming him as someone offering tribute. And this king is celebrating his own glory by the fact that Jehu's had to do this. Because Jehu bowed to his idols, he's remembered in stone, bowing to another king in servitude. And so he's rewarded. Well, we have one final part of our passage today. We've made it all the way through. We just have one final part, and that was the very first part, the first eight verses that we had read to us in the Bible reading. Um, and remember, uh, remember, right at the start, we looked at 1 Kings chapter 19, and God made those promises, and one of them was to keep a faithful remnant, uh, and that was the Shunammite woman. God hadn't forgotten about them. And the Shunammite woman, I keep saying it wrong, uh, it's come up a couple of times uh, over the last few weeks, and she's always that picture of the, this faithful uh, woman serving God. Well, let me do a, a super quick drive-by of this story. Let's rip through it. Elisha says to the woman in chapter 8, verse 1, Get ready, you and your household, go and live as a foreigner wherever you can, for the Lord has announced a seven-year famine, and it has already come to the land. So God is going to judge the faithless of Israel with a seven-year famine, but the faithful woman will be spared from the judgment. So the story continues in verse 2. So the woman got ready and did what the man of God said. She and her household lived as foreigners in the land of the Philistines for seven years. When the woman returned from the land of Philistines, at the end of seven years, she went to appeal to the king for her house and field. So uh, this famine's coming. She goes off to live. She's obedient to what the prophet says. She goes off to live in uh, the, the foreign land, Philistia, for seven years. Um, but her family's land back in Israel in the meantime is, is taken. Is, is, um, someone else has it. And so her inheritance in God's land is gone. And to cut a long story short, uh, Elisha's attendant just happens to be with the king as she goes to appeal to get her land back. The prophet ensures uh, she gets uh, rewarded. And so the king uh, says, uh, verse 6, midway through, restore all that was hers along with all the income from the field from the day she left the country until now. And so we see that God has rewarded uh, her faithfulness by preserving her inheritance. Uh, and it, I think the story is placed here in Second Kings as a small reminder that God is faithful uh, to his promises to reward. The story here, it's here knowing that uh, Judah will eventually go into exile itself. A uh, small reminder, God is going to judge them. God is going to send them to a pagan land, but God is faithful. He would restore their inheritance. He would be faithful to that son of David as he promised. And of course, all who look to Jesus, the son of David, for salvation, we are, we are part of that inheritance. God will reward our faithfulness giving us land in the new creation to come. That's our passage. We did it, three chapters. <laughs> As we stand back, uh, we see that God's used Elisha, his prophet, to bring 
judgment. And, 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 you know, if you think of the last few weeks, it's quite a stark change, isn't it? Elisha's been going around doing miracles, hasn't he, week after week. It almost was a bit repetitive. There was just so many miracles. One after another, he was going around giving food. He was going around healing. He was even bringing people to life. But today, he brought judgment. He'd been warning. He'd been warning. He'd been warning. And now it came. Judgment came. They would not listen to God. They would not turn to God. Uh, I, I don't know if you're a, a procrastinator. Procrastinator. Some of us are procrasta cleaners. Some of us are procrasta bakers. Um, but I think we all know that feeling of being stressed out, like the impending deadline. A few people are nodding their head profusely. Uh, Nikki, my wife, uh, in her uni days, she was famously she was famously a procrastinator, um, and you know she would write her essays right up until the very the final minute. Uh, and, you know, to the last possible minute. And the thing I loved about it is she would plan for her procrastination, the lateness. And so she would be writing her essay and then she would get her printer and throw it in the car and then drive to, to uni and then pull the printer out and then set up right outside the submission box with a laptop and printer and, like, right up until the very last minute, print it off and then drop it in the box. <laughs> I think she was admirably well prepared to be uh, late. <laughs> I think she enjoyed the pressure, actually. Well, have you ever had the experience of having a deadline extended where, you know, there you are, you're working and it's, it's getting tense and then all of a sudden something happens and you're given an extension. Of course, you, you know, you go and have a cup of coffee, visit a friend, go visit some people, go to the beach and then sure enough, you've squandered your time and you're back under pressure. Well, that's very much what we see in Second Kings. Um, Elisha, he's been bringing blessings. Uh, he's been warning them, but, but blessing after blessing, and God delays judgment, delays uh, because he longs for them to be saved, for them to be faithful. But they misunderstand his delay, his extending of grace to mean that they're going to be okay. They think they've gotten away with it, that judgment won't come. Uh, but today it did, and it was, it was gruesome, it was swift, it was terrible. Uh, did you know that Elisha and Jesus, uh, their names mean the same thing? They're, both their names mean God saves. Uh, Elisha is a prefigure of Jesus. His ministry is just like Elisha's. Uh, Jesus came to earth. He did miracles. He blessed. He healed. He gave life. All the while, he warned of the judgment to come for those who were not right with God, for the disobedient. Like Elisha, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. He sees the terror of judgment in store for those around us that do not know him, that are not obedient to him. And so don't procrastinate. Don't dilly-dally. Live today like Jesus will return tomorrow. Be prepared. Don't waste a minute of your life. Be like the Shunammite woman who gave all of her life to serve Yahweh, who was obedient in the society that was against him. So when judgment came... She was spared and received her inheritance. For God is faithful. In him there is a great reward, a wonderful inheritance being kept for us. Let me pray. Father God, may we hear your warnings in Scripture and may we turn to you. Help us to live every moment of our lives with your return to judge on our minds, in our hearts and upon our hands. Help us to live obedient lives, to honour you in every way. And Father, thank you for making the way clear by sending Jesus. 
Keep us until the day when you call us home, and may we all see your glorious reward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.